0: Last Sunday when we looked at the baptism of Jesus we caught a glimpse of something unseen but significant something reminding us we live in a world more than we see with our eyes or touch with our hands for far above the banks of the Jordan River heaven was torn open and the spirit descended upon Jesus in the form of a dove yet the cosmos was fractured ripped apart And I'm not talking about the barrier between our atmosphere and outer space. talking about the barrier between the material and the supernatural. Between the world of atoms and supernovas and the world of the spiritual and unseen. Between the world of earth and rock, plants and animal, and the world of the spiritual and the unseen. Demons, principalities and powers. What we glimpsed in glory above the Jordan River last week, today we're going to see in conflict as evil and temptation face off with the Son of God. A conflict and a confrontation that we will see Jesus triumph in the wilderness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we pray that you will open our hard hearts and deaf ears to hear what you have to say to us. May we catch a glimpse of Jesus in his glory and how much we need him. In Jesus' name, Amen. Today we're going to focus on just the two verses in Mark, verse 12 and 13. Once the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and he was in the desert for 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels attended him. Now compared to Matthew and Luke, Mark's account of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness is very brief. It's got very little colour and no detail. In Mark, there's no indication at all that Jesus was tempted three times. There's no indication of Jesus, after 40 days fasting, being tempted to turn the stones into bread. There's no indication of Satan asking Jesus to stand on the temple and throw himself off so the angels would miraculously save him and that the world may know that he was God. And he resisted the temptation that Satan offered him to rule all the kingdoms of the world if he would but worship Satan. And we don't get any of that detail or any of that colour in Mark's Gospel. It's very brief. And that's not the only place that Mark does this. There's a number of times when Mark seems to cut out all those interesting things that Matthew and Luke add in. We saw that last week with the baptism. Baptism. Matthew includes the, the conversation that uh, Jesus and John the Baptist have. John the Baptist said, "I'm not worthy to be baptized, to baptize you Jesus. you should be baptizing me." And Mark doesn't have that conversation. We understand because we asked that same question last week. And there's a number of other examples as well. For instance, in Matthew there are five major teaching sections. And Luke likewise. But Mark doesn't even have the Sermon on the Mount, nor the Lord's Prayer. And so we wonder why Mark is really interested in this this brevity. And it's to create a sense of urgency. In Mark's mind, he needs to explain who Jesus is and get us to the cross. And so he's brief in so many areas. And that helps to create that sense of urgency. He wants to explain who Jesus is and why he had to die. And as we'll see in the next week or two, the shadow of the cross falls very early on Jesus in this gospel. In fact, Mark has been described as the passion narrative, the story of the cross, with a very long introduction. And it starts here. And we see something of this sense of urgency in the very first words of our verses we're looking at verse 12 at once now 17 times Mark uses the Greek word which means immediately especially in the first few chapters now in the English because our ears like to hear variety translators have not just used the word immediately they've used words like uh, at once Uh, in chapter 1 verse 20 as James and John are called to follow Jesus we're told they follow Jesus without delay. When Jesus heals the leper in chapter 1, verse 42, the leprosy immediately leaves the leper. And if you pay attention in these first few chapters, you get this immediately at once coming across. As as Mark creates a sense of urgency, he wants to get us to the cross. At once, the Spirit sent him out into the desert And again, sent him, Uh, it can be translated drove him. And we notice that when we look at Matthew and Luke, they use the word led, a lot more gentler. Mark, though, has the Holy Spirit sending, driving him out into the wilderness. Why? Again, to create that sense of urgency. So that's the first thing we can see here in the passage. Where is Jesus sent to, or where does the Holy Spirit drive him to? Well, out into the desert for 40 days. I mean, why the desert, and why 40 days? Well, it brings us to the Old Testament passage we had read earlier, the passage in Numbers. Because those 40 days in the desert reminds us of 40 years the Israelites had in the same desert. We pick up our story of the Old Testament Understanding of what Moses and the Israelites were up to. They had escaped slavery in Egypt. God had worked miracle upon miracle, ten miracles, wonderful miracles, and then parted the Red Sea. It took about three months for the Israelites to get from Egypt to Mount Sinai. There they stayed for about a year while Moses received the law and they built the tabernacle, the tent centre of worship. And after about 12 months, they were ready to make the three-week trip to the Promised Land the Jordan River being the boundary. And before that, before they make the three-week trip, they send out 12 spies. And the 12 spies spent 40 days spying out the land. And then they come back with a mixed report. All of the 12 spies say that it is a wonderful land, indeed flowing with milk and honey. But 10 of the spies say there are giants in that land. The armies are strong and the cities are fortified we will get wiped out. Let's turn around and go back to Egypt. Two of the spies, Caleb and Joshua, argue that they should go. Why not? God defeated the Egyptians. Surely he could defeat these people. And the Israelites are tempted to trust God, to believe his word or not. And they fail. They fail big time. They give into temptation. And it wasn't for the intervention of Moses and the mercy of God. They'd all be destroyed on the spot. And their punishment, instead of spending three weeks to travel from Mount Sinai to the Jordan and the Promised Land, they had to spend 40 years. One year for every day the spies spent spying out the land. And now, fast forward about two and a half thousand years or so, and we are in the same wilderness. And Jesus is there for 40 days. But it's tougher for him. Because the Israelites had manna, bread from heaven and Jesus, who is the bread from heaven, had nothing 40 days fasting and like the Israelites he was tempted to believe the lies of the devil but unlike God's people he resisted and stayed strong How? Because of who he is the Son of God, Christ the Anointed and in the desert Jesus showed himself worthy to lead God's people But there's more too. And he was in the desert for 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild animals and the angels attended him. Now the phrase being tempted by Satan and the reference to animals refers and references us back to Adam who was also tempted by Satan. We have that uh, picture of uh, Adam with the animals in the garden. So if we go back to that story found in Genesis 3 Adam was tempted in the garden Satan piled lie upon lie saying God could not be trusted he was holding something wonderful back from Adam and Eve he was holding back the fruit of the tree that would make them be like God surely they could take the fruit they could reach out and grasp it and they would not die but they would be like God and Adam believed the lie and he fell and great was that fall Adam and Eve's relationship with God was broken. Their relationship with each other, broken. Their relationship with the garden and all creation, broken. Sin entered the human race. It entered the human race until a true and a better Adam could come and reverse the deed. So now in the wilderness, Jesus is also tempted. And from Matthew and Luke, we know the temptations were at their core to be like God to take shortcuts, to reach out and grasp the glory of God and make it his own. But unlike the first Adam, this true and better Adam resisted the temptation. Now, I love the way that uh, Philippians chapter 2, 6-8 to eight puts it. Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. That's exactly what Adam and Eve were trying to do. Grasp equality with God. Verse 7, but Jesus made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. You see, in the wilderness, Jesus had every opportunity to grasp equality with God, just like Adam and Eve tried, but Jesus refused. He chose humility, obedience and the way of the cross. So Adam gave into temptation and through this one man death entered the human race. But the good news of the gospel is the true and the better Adam has come and that this second Adam resisted temptation. He destroyed death by the cross and has set all humanity free. There in the wilderness, in the desert, the great reversal begins. A great reversal that starts in the wilderness but will lead all the way to the cross. So to Mark's question, and remember all through this Gospel, Mark is continually asking, well who's Jesus? Who's Jesus? And then he shows us. So to answer to this question we see that he's not only God's Son and the Anointed, but he is also the second Adam, the true and the better Adam, who reverses the great fall of Genesis 3. So what have we looked at so far in just these two verses? I'll read them again. At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert and he was in the desert for 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels attended him. Well, we've seen that Mark in various ways creates a sense of urgency in this Gospel by using words like immediately, at once, without delay, by his brevity and choosing stories and incidents that lead us to the cross Mark creates the sense of urgency as Jesus is on a heroic quest, a mission that will save the world. Secondly, we've seen that there was a reference to the 40 years in the desert where Jesus resisted that temptation unlike the people of God and was worthy to be even the king who would lead his people. And finally, we've seen Jesus as the second Adam that he was tempted but did not fall. He was obedient even to death on the cross. So what are we to make of this? What's our take home with all of this? Well, though brief, this passage gives us some practical ways that we too can deal with temptation. And the first thing that this passage tells us was to expect temptation. Jesus was not exempt from being tempted and neither should any of us expect temptation. To be exempt. Now, there are times in our lives when temptation is particularly strong and we struggle, and there are other times when it just seems to be at the back door and we don't notice. But notice in this case that temptation followed a mountaintop experience. That is often when we are most vulnerable. And so, Jesus had this amazing experience where God spoke to him in his baptism, and and the Holy Spirit came down on him, and he was uh, anointed. And straight away, after that mountaintop experience, Jesus was tempted. And it can be the same with us. You know, so we could be praying and praying for a loved one or some, something, and there's a breakthrough, and we've got this amazing success. Or we may go to a conference, and the Holy Spirit really touches us, and we come back physically. Those can be the times when Satan can really get at us with temptation. And so often we're used to being uh, watching out for temptation when we're tired and when we're vulnerable, you know, and when things are going grim, we can be pretty good at resisting temptation. But often when things have gone really well, you know, we let our guard down. And it may just not be spiritual; it may be in work. You know, maybe this amazing thing happened career. You know, you've had this amazing year on the farm, you know, and and you've got a good payout and everything's ticking over really well and you want to celebrate, uh, or a business deal, or something else. It may be in the family. You might just have a string of good news stories, grandchildren, you know, weddings, and you're just on a really good place. And those can be the times when temptation, when Satan comes in, and we need to be careful. The next thing is, it's God's will that we are tempted. The Spirit sent, drove Jesus in the desert to be tempted, and it is the same with us. Now, you're going to hear me carefully. I'm not saying God tempts us would be a wicked thing for me to say God does not tempt us but he allows temptations to come into our lives to test us, to stretch us even to build us up as he shows us his mercy so let me explain, I'll give you two examples of how temptation works, both in the negative and in the positive God works temptation for his glory in the negative way, now how does he do that? Well we might have a problem with gambling And we think we've got it under control, but we haven't. And we think it's not affecting our family life, but it is. And we think our gambling problem, God doesn't mind, but he does. So God allows temptation to build. And even though we've been warned, we fall and hit rock bottom. And finally we admit to ourselves and to God, we have a problem. And God can work with that. While we were in our pride we were not open to God's leading but it was the incoming temptation in our fall that humbled us and God's mercy can bring us through. So that's how God can use temptation in a negative sense in our lives. But he can also use it in a positive sense in a positive way to affirm and strengthen our faith. The day before Judy and I were to move down to the Eden to start training we were in Rotorua. I had resigned from teaching at the beginning of the summer and had quite a lovely summer actually and I was tidying up the section and we still rent out that family home after all these years and I was out and the the moving truck was coming the next day anyway it was morning and Judy brought the phone out and there was a friend um, that I'd known through teaching who lived in a rather nice part of New Zealand and I was offered my dream job could not believe it Christian school Brand new school with a big budget Head of Science with an open book to do what I wanted Year 7 to 10 for that next year And then the next year they'd add year 11, year 12, year 13 And it was a dream job And the next day we were going down to Knox to study And so I gave the phone back to Judy and went to cleaning up the section I came back at lunchtime and Judy was a little concerned. <laughs> what were we going to do? But I was over it. Because as I was out there, you know, cleaning up the section and all that, I thought the timing has to be from God. This has to be a God thing that He has put this position right there on a plate. And I became absolutely convinced that ministry was what I needed to do. It really helped. I mean, it was a genuine temptation, genuine offer. You know, I know the, knew the person well. I, um, while I were developing the school about 12 months before, I'd been doing some consultancy work with the, with the school about how to build a science department and technology and, and integrate and all that sort of stuff. So I, I knew what was happening there. But I just went down to Knox with the absolute assurance that that's what God wanted me to do. And so God used that temptation in a very positive way. It strengthened my faith. It put a line in the sand that even now I look back to and think, "Am I right? Is it right for me to be in the ministry?" Yes, it is, because of, and that's one of the number of stakes in the sand that I can put my um, put my finger on. And can you so Can you see how God uses temptation in a negative way to humble us, so that we have to throw ourselves on the mercy of God and He will pick us up. But He can also use it in a positive way, so that when we resist by trusting in His Holy Spirit. our faith becomes stronger and our relationship with him deepens. So it is surprisingly God's will that temptation comes into our life. And finally, God will sustain us. For 40 days Jesus was in uh, in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels attended him. In Matthew's account we know that this happened after the 40 days of fasting and after the three temptations and Matthew uses the phrase and the angels sustained Jesus. Jesus. So we have this wonderful image here of the heavenly father reaching down to sustain and encourage the son. And this is exactly the same for us. We are tempted, God sends temptations along our way, but he never leaves us out of our depth. He will always sustain us. And we have this promise in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, notice it doesn't say if you are tempted, it says when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. And the Heavenly Father did that to Jesus. As Jesus was being tempted, I am sure that he threw himself on the mercy of his Heavenly Father. And he can do the same for us as well. He will sustain us. And if we fall, he's ready to catch, to hold us firmly and put us back on our feet as we repent and look to the great sustainer. As we draw to a close with this message, I want to put this story of Jesus' temptation in perspective because this actually sets the scene for the rest of the Gospel. For in this wilderness account, we see the supernatural conflict that underlies the rest of the Gospel. See, most of the supernatural conflict between angels and demons happens in the spiritual and we're not privy to that. But here we catch a glimpse. We catch a glimpse that we see throughout the rest of the gospel. So we will soon see Jesus in conflict with powers of darkness as he heals, as he casts out demons, as he sets people free. And we'll see him in conflict with the Pharisees as hostility grows and plots are hatched. And underlying all of this conflict is the battle in the supernatural that we only catch a glimpse here. Through the rest of the gospel, Satan will manoeuvre his resources against Jesus. Satan's resources of sickness in people, of demon possession, of the religious leaders who are against him, even death itself. And he he manoeuvres all of these resources to try and destroy the Son of God. But here in the wilderness we see the first of many defeats that Jesus will inflict on Satan. Defeat upon defeat until eventually we will see Satan's head crushed at the foot of the cross, to the foot of the cross to which this gospel so wonderfully leads. Let's pray.